Hey everybody, this is Josh, and we had a bit of an issue yesterday with our sermon audio. We couldn't get the internet to work, and so we were trying to use someone's hotspot on their phone to try to, you know, record and live stream our service, and it just didn't work out. It's all choppy and stuff. And so uh, this one's going to be a little bit different in that I'm actually just sitting in my office right now, and I'm going to walk through this message because I think it's really important, and I'm kind of bummed that we didn't get it recorded. It seemed to have kind of an impact in the room. And so I want to go ahead and just give you this content anyway, uh, because it's important to our Why We Exist series and really important to who we are as Redeeming Grace Church. So um, this one's going to sound just a little bit different because it's not in the room in front of people as a sermon at church. Uh, It's just me in my office trying to recreate that moment. So hopefully uh, you're able to track along just fine, and hopefully it still fits with the, uh, the larger series. So let's get going. You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. So it has been about 48 years since the landmark Roe v. Wade uh, Supreme Court case that legalized uh, abortion. And ever since then, there has been a massive debate in our country between pro-choice and pro-life people. That has been a current cultural battle for, man, 48 years ever since this passed. And it's taken up the adult lives of most of four generations, the boomers who are 60 and up, the Gen Xers who are in their 40s and 50s, the millennials who are mid-20s to about 40, and then Gen Z, those that are you know, 20 and under. Um, And what's fascinating is that of those four generations, by far the most pro-life by percentage is the millennials. That might surprise some pro-lifers who tend to think that the world keeps getting worse and worse. And, uh, but, but it's fascinating that actually millennials and even the Gen Z are the two generations that are just year over year by percentage becoming more pro-life And the actual, the older two generations, boomers and Gen Xers, are actually slightly trending year over year more pro-choice. And it's interesting. Why why is that happening? What is the key factor that seems to be moving the needle, seems to be persuading the younger generations to a more pro-life position? Um, Now, there might be, you might point to a number of things, and I'm sure it's it's a constellation of different um, different factors. Uh, some might point to legislation. Some might point to protests or picketing or just really sound arguments about life and and all that and science and all this stuff. But I but it seems like if you talk to act- to people who actually work in the pro life space, the thing that seems to be moving the needle, that seems to be changing the hearts and minds of the younger generation, is actually technology. It is the advancements in ultrasound technology that seem to be making the biggest dent among the younger generation in terms of persuading them to change their opinion on the issue of abortion from pro-choice to pro-life. That's not that those other things don't matter and don't play a factor. They do. It's just that it seems that the, the way to persuade people to change their position or to a you know, healthier position is not by arguments, not by political force, not by power, but it seems like when people can have an encounter, they can see in detail what has previously been invisible, 
what feels like maybe it's not real, not a person. Now, all of a sudden you can see it and your emotions uh, connect with that image and your mind is persuaded. You're transformed in your position on the issue. So likewise, the kingdom of God. You read in the Gospels and you hear the message of the Gospel, and it can, if we're honest, sound like a fantasy. It can sound made up, but it becomes a whole different deal when you can actually see it, when you can perceive it with your own senses, just like the pro-life thing. The people are younger generation is moving in a more pro-life direction because they're actually able to perceive what's there. And and, and their decisions are being made, uh, not just at an intellectual level, but at an emotional level. It's all the whole person encountering a whole nother person that persuades. And the same is true when it comes to the kingdom of God. When you perceive it, it doesn't, our, our arguments for the existence of God, our legislating for particular policies, uh, God, they don't make a dent. They don't persuade people. And I think the stats bear that out, that um, that the church largely is not growing, at least in our context. And I think it's because we are not using the God-ordained means to bring people into the kingdom to persuade them. God did not ordain these to be the persuasive means of bringing people into his kingdom. Now, they have a place, arguments, apologetics, good sound logic, uh, policies, and just laws. Those all matter. But what really brings people into the kingdom, I think, is when we put down the sword of outrage and politics and culture warrioring, that's a hard word, and take up the towel of service that Christ ordained to mark his kingdom. I think that the, the local church is the way that God makes this invisible reality visible. It's how he puts an ultrasound on the kingdom of God and people can perceive it. Not just hear the arguments for it, but actually perceive the kingdom of God in front of them with their five senses. So here's the question. How is the invisible spiritual kingdom of Jesus made visible and physical on the earth? And the answer is the church. If you look at Ephesians chapter 3, I'm going to turn there in my Bible here. Ephesians chapter 3. Here is what Paul says about, uh, this is one of my favorite chapters. This is what Paul has to say about this. He says this in in verse 7. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles, the outsiders, to God's, uh, to God's plan, the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light to everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God. Think of just how magnificent, mysterious, invisible, cosmic, significant that sounds. That it, the plan of the mystery hidden in God, through, uh, hidden for ages in God, who created all things. And then here's what he says. Here is how it's made Manifest. Here is this plan, this mystery hidden for ages in the mind of God who created everything. All right. It's being unfolded. It's being uh, it's being brought to the front. It's being made visible. And here's what he says. Verse 10. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So so the church is not just a display of the kingdom of God. It's not just the ultrasound image of what the invisible reality of the kingdom. It's not just making that manifest, making that perceivable on the earth, but it actually is making it perceivable in the heavenly places, in the spiritual realms, to angels and demons and forces in the heavenly places. It's through the church. 
that the kingdom of God is made visible, perceivable, and God is declaring victory, the, the king's victory through the church. It says in verse 11, this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you to not lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is for your glory. So the church, the church is how the kingdom of God is made visible and people are not going to come into the kingdom unless they're able to perceive the kingdom of God, not just with words, but able to perceive it with their own hands. Obviously, we've talked about this before, that the gospel must be communicated in words. No one is saved. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. But the persuasiveness of the message is bolstered up by the church, by the ability to perceive it. So this is the third in our series through the Why We Exist series, where what we're trying to do is uh, in the month of January 2021, is just take this mark, our first year as a church, by just returning to what is it that makes us who we are? Why do we exist? Why did we start this church? What do we want to be about? We can't be about everything. What is it biblically we must be about? And the first week we talked about we exist to prioritize the gospel above all. The gospel is going to be of first importance, as 1 Corinthians 15 says, that we're going to make the gospel the central thing in our church, not the gospel plus anything, not the gospel plus politics, not the gospel plus programs, but just the gospel and the proclamation of the gospel is going to be above all. And then secondly, we got into, you know, one of those three words that is is part of our purpose, the enjoy, display and share uh, in that second message in the series, we exist to enjoy God in all things from Psalm 16. And we just looked at how God is the most enjoyable being in the whole universe that has ever existed. He exists in mutual satisfaction among the Trinity and God created the world to be enjoyed and to enjoy him. And God created us in his image to know him, to enjoy him. And that all, actually all of life is about enjoying God and everything that marks death and destruction and all and hell is the lack of enjoyment in God and to experience the, the removal of the ability to enjoy God. And then today, um, we're looking at how to display that we exist to display God's glory as a church. And I'm going to spend two weeks on this. So I'm just going to lay the, put the framework in place today. And then next Sunday, um, try to fill in some of that framework in terms of the specifics of how we display God's glory as a church, how the kingdom of God is made visible, perceivable to the five senses, um, through the church. So today I want to spend our time discovering what the church is and the next week, practically how the church is designed to display the glory of God and the reality of the kingdom. So first of all, we've got to ask ourselves a question. What is a church or what is the church? But we go to our Bibles and we look at the original language in Greek and we find that the word church in Greek is ekklesia, ekklesia. And ekklesia just linguistically means a called out assembly. That's just the basic definition, a called out assembly, a group of people that have gathered for a purpose. They've been called to something and now they assemble around that something in the new Testament. The word ecclesia is used really in two parts. Um, One is, um, well, let's look at actually I'm jumping ahead a little bit. Um, A called out assembly. Let's look at the two parts of that called out. Um, so in that sense, the people of God are called out by God unto salvation. In, in other words, set apart 
or holy. So the church is those who have been called to trust in Jesus Christ and they've responded. So it's a called out assembly. It is an assembly that God has called. Mankind has not made up the church. God has called forth the church. And then we have assembly, a gathered gathering together. Um, and so it, it has this sense of like, you can't just be the church by yourself. You have to be with people. It's a gathering. It's an assembly. So the idea of ecclesia, you can't be the church. You have to attend a church. And so, yeah, you've, you've probably heard that phrase before. Don't go to church, be the church. Um, and I think I understand what the spirit of that is. It's like, don't just like be kind of a passive Christian that just shows up to stuff, actually do something. Um, but that's, that makes no sense in terms of what ecclesia uh, or ecclesia really means. Uh, it means a called out assembly. You can't be church. You have to attend church. You have to gather with people. So anything that is not a gathering of people around a calling is not in any sense a church. So you can't just be the church yourself. It's like saying a square circle. You can't assemble yourself. <laughs> so the Bible uses the word uh, ecclesia in two ways. Um, and I like to call it big C church and little C church. So the fact that the kingdom of God is represented, pictured as an ecclesia, a called out assembly in the world, uh, big C would be all of those who've been called out by God unto salvation by repentance and faith in Jesus Christ from all time, past, present, and future, everywhere around the world, every age, Anyone who has repented and believed in the gospel, anyone who has been called out by God to salvation, to trust in Christ, is part of Big C Church. We call it the global church. We call it the cosmic church. We call it the eschatological or end times church. And you might be saying, well, Colossians 1 says this, uh, Colossians 1, 17 and 18. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So that's this big cosmic view of Christ being the head of the church, meaning all believers from all time um, and from every place on the earth. So you might be going, well, wait a minute. You said the word church means assembly. Um, in no sense has all of the people of God actually been able to physically assemble. And in that sense, you're correct. The word does mean assembly, and the global church is just by definition, because many of them are dead, some of them are not even born yet, we're all around the world, there's there's no way possible for the entire ecclesia, Big C Church, to have gathered. So in what sense are they gathered? Well, Revelation 7, 9, and 10 points to a future reality where everyone will be gathered around the throne. This is what it says, Revelation 7, 9, and 10. And after this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So what this means is that from God's perspective, his entire church is gathered around the throne in heaven. He's outside of time. And so in that sense, God is there right now. And in, at least in terms of how God, from God's perspective, his church is gathered. Everyone from the earliest disciples, everyone who has trusted in him, maybe even from the Old Testament, up until now, everyone around the world, past, present, and future, all of them are gathered. And so in that sense, when God says, you are my called out assembly, you are my church, from a cosmic eternal perspective, the people are gathered in one place at one time and are legitimately a called out assembly in the biggest, most spiritual and eternal sense. 
And so it still works. It's consistent with what the word means, a called out assembly, a heavenly future assembly of all of us. In that sense, all who are saved are members of this one global, eternal, universal church that will be physically present in one place together around the throne, a called out assembly. So in that sense, we are in a spiritual and eternal and um, cosmic future sense. We are a called out assembly before God. But there's also the Bible talks a lot about what I call little C church. So it speaks of ecclesia in two ways. Big C church belonging to the global church, the saved from all of time. And then the little C church, a local church. Uh, a local church is a mutually affirming group of new covenant members and kingdom citizens who are identified by right regularly gathering together in real time and space now in Jesus name through the preaching of the gospel and the celebrating of the ordinances, a mutually affirming group of new covenant members and kingdom citizens who are identified by regularly gathering together in Jesus name through the preaching of the gospel and the celebrating of the ordinances. Here's an example of little C church in the new Testament. First Corinthians one, two to the church of God that is in Corinth to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, call to be saints together with all those who are in every place, call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So you see that to the church of God that is in Corinth, the one that gathers in Corinth, that one, that church. And uh, and also in the passage, he, he kind of blows it up as well to talk about the big C church together with all those who in every place call in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So you got both big C church, the big all Christians everywhere from all of time. And then you've also got, and the church that meets at Corinth in that house, those 30 people that gather together, however big it was. So here's the question. How do you know if someone belongs to the global, eternal, heavenly big C church? How do you know that? How could you tell? Here's how. They have clearly identified themselves in a biblical way with a particular local church. There's a local church that they belong to that exists here on earth. That big global church is made visible every time that Christians gather in a mutually affirming way around covenant membership, the preaching of God's word, the celebrating of the ordinances. They've clearly identified themselves with a particular local church and in that make their participation in the global church real, tangible. And that's how we know. In the New Testament, when we talk about local church in Ecclesia, we need to realize that we should never pit Big C church against little C church, that they're actually little C church is the physical manifestation. It's how you can perceive the global church. It's how you can perceive the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And when the word ecclesia or or ecclesia is used, it's used 114 times in the New Testament. Three of those times is just to describe a mob that's called together to beat up Paul in Acts chapter 19. So in that sense, it's kind of just a secular church, (laughs) um, this secular um, ecclesia where these people are called out and gathered together in order to beat up Paul. So that's three of the 114 times. One of the other times refers to a gathering of the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. So it's just referring back to an event in the Old Testament, and it calls that assembly a ecclesia. So that's another of, of the times. 18 of the times is um, referring to the global big eternal big C church. So 18 of 114 times, it's actually referring to big C church. The overwhelming majority 
of the uses of the word ecclesia or ecclesia in the New Testament, 92 of the 114 times refers to the local assembly. So in the New Testament, the overwhelming evident, um, emphasis is not on the big C church. It's there. I don't mean to diminish it. But the Bible's emphasis is how you relate to the local church and how God relates to the local church. God's priority is that we get local church right, that local church be um, of supreme importance to us. In the New Testament, now this sounds this might sound provocative. Uh, it is in some sense, but I think it's true. I think it's biblical. I just think it cuts against our American individualistic spirit. But in the New Testament, God does not primarily relate to his people as nation states. He doesn't relate to us as Americans or Canadians or Norwegians. He does not primarily relate to his people as nation states, nor does he relate primarily in the New Testament to us as individuals? Now, we do need to come to faith in Jesus Christ as individuals. We do need to re relate to God individually. I'm not trying to take that away. But the emphasis on how God relates to his people is as churches. Look at your New Testament. The letters are written to churches. There's uh, only a couple of, of letters, in the, only a handful of letters in the New Testament that are written to individuals. Um they're all written to churches for the most part. And even the ones that are written to individuals are about the church. It's still at the heart of what does our Christian life look like together. There's no individualistic Christians in the New Testament. You just don't find them. So God relates to his people, not as nations, which he did a lot in the Old Testament, not primarily as individuals, although that's there, but as churches, as ecclesias, as as, as called out assemblies. So Christianity is not fundamentally national and it's not fundamentally individualistic. Christianity is fundamentally church centered. It's gathering centered. It's called out assembly centered. So you and I, if we are to be faithful New Testament believers, need to adjust our relationship with God accordingly. We need to push national perspective way down to the bottom and we need to push individual, just me and Jesus down a little bit. And we need to raise to the top corporate local church as a primary way that God relates to us, as, as, as God wants us to relate to him. Second Corinthians 11 gives this really fascinating um, look at how Paul sees this. Um, 2 Corinthians 11, he is describing to the Corinthians a little bit of what he has gone through as an apostle. And here's what he says. Um, Far more imprisonments with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many... Uh, sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for the government. No, the emperor. No, for the unjust laws. No, for the individuals. No, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Paul, the primary category in all of these sufferings, 
that he is enduring for the sake of the gospel to get the gospel out to people. They do not compare in his mind to the concern that he has for politics. No. For poverty. No. I mean, he cares about those things. For particular people. No, his concern is for the churches. He is thinking of the people of God and their mission in the world primarily as churchy. He's concerned about how they're relating, not to God individually, not to the government, but to how they're relating to one another as covenant members of a church. He's concerned about the churches. So that should tell us that the overwhelming emphasis of the New Testament is that our life has to be a church-centered life. That's how God relates to his people. He does relate to us individually, but the vast majority of the New Testament is about him relating to us as called out, committed assemblies, as churches. So let's talk for a few minutes just about the metaphors of the church. In the New Testament, this metaphor, or this this ecclesia, has a multiplicity of, of metaphors in the New Testament just so that we can get a sense of what God intends for the local church to be and the global church together. So um, someone pointed out that there's 96 different metaphors or images for the church in the New Testament. 96. Now, I didn't go through and count them, so I don't know if that's accurate or not, but that's probably pretty close. 96 images for the church, metaphors to help us get our minds around what church is supposed to be, what God designed it for, this cosmic plan that was in the mind of God from the very beginning that would be the display of his glory, the revelation of his kingdom um, is is uh, described in these 96 different images. Let me give you four. One is that the church is called the bride of Christ. The church is called the bride of Christ. And I think this is meant to point to the fact that we are in covenant relationship with Jesus together. We're in covenant with one another, but we're also in covenant with Jesus. This marital covenant that pictures the beauty and intimacy of Jesus with his people. The covenant unity that we have with Jesus um, is predicted, uh, um, is portrayed here, is, is made a metaphor of the bride of Christ. We're the bride of Christ. And so John 3, here's what John says, John the Baptist. So what's happening? I'm sorry, John 2. No, John 3. Um, John's disciples are beginning to follow Jesus. And there's a handful of people that are like, hey, John, aren't you kind of worked up about this? Jesus came and now he's stealing all your followers. And now his thing is bigger than your thing. And here's what it says, John 3, 25. Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, meaning Jesus, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourself bear witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. Ah, isn't that interesting? He's talking about the followers that he used to have as being the bride, but not his bride. He was just gathering. He was just preparing her for the bridegroom. And Jesus is the bridegroom. And so he describes Jesus baptizing these people as his followers, as a bridegroom receiving his bride. That's how he describes it. And he says this, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. So he's like, I'm just the friend of the groom. I'm just the best man. I'm just, I'm just the guy. I'm not there trying to woo the attention of the bride. I am fading into the background because my job was just to get the bride and the groom together. And I've done it. And now my job is to get out of the way. 
And he says, I must become greater or uh, he must become greater. I must become less. And so John the Baptist gets it. He's like followers of Jesus. They're baptized and they're brought into this covenant relationship with Jesus. And it's like a bride and her husband. It's like a wedding day. It's meant to picture the beauty and intimacy of a covenant relationship that Jesus has with his people. Ephesians 5 puts it this way. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So human marriage is meant to picture the intimacy and the covenant and the joy and the productivity of of Christ and his church. Revelation 19, we get to the end of the Bible and we see how things are going to end and how history is going to come to a culmination, how God's going to make everything. And look how... Uh, It's described, Revelation 19, 7. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. That's the church. The church is the bride. And the end of all things is a wedding feast. It's a, a wedding day where the church is received as this beautiful bride who's made herself ready and is ready to enter into eternal covenant with Jesus, the Lamb. So it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful picture. The beautiful uh, metaphor of the church as the bride of Christ. The second metaphor is the body of Christ. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 1, Ephesians 4, Colossians 1, Romans 12. We could go on. This is a major metaphor in the New Testament for the body of Christ. Colossians 1, 24 says this. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. And what we have here is we have this picture of of cooperative, interdependent life, unity in diversity of the people of God with Christ as the head. I mean, think of your body. Um, You've got many different parts, many different cells, um, many different organs that do different things. And that's a good thing. Your body has this interdependent life where all of the body parts need and care for one another. And your body is a unity in diversity that makes life possible. If your body was just an eyeball, First Corinthians talks about this, or your body was just an ear, you would not function as a person. You, there would be no life there. So the fact that there is this unity in diversity and this interdependent life that has to be connected. If you cut off a body part, it will die. It has to be formally connected to the body. And likewise, the Christian has no life apart from its connection to the body. That's the picture of the New Testament. There's just no way around that. The idea with Christ as the head. You know that your hand cannot move apart from getting the signals that you need from your brain. Likewise, your heart will not keep beating if it does not receive signals from the brain. And also... The, te- the church cannot move at all without orders of, from Christ. The body is responsive to its head. Christ, whatever he thinks, whatever he desires, whatever he wants done, the body instinctively must respond. That's what life looks like. Christ is the head. He is the one that's in charge and we respond. He, We have no authority. We have no ability to do anything in and of ourselves. We need the head. We need the brain signals being sent through the church in order to do what he wants done in the world. So the body of Christ, that metaphor is meant to meant to depict the cooperative inter, interdependent life, the unity and diversity of the people of God with Christ in charge, Christ as the head, Christ as the brain of the body. So that's one of, that's the second metaphor 
of the church. The third is this, the temple of the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 2, 1 Corinthians 3, 1 Corinthians 6. And this is fascinating. 1 Corinthians 3 says, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If God, if you, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Now, I think most of you, if you were reading this, would be thinking that this is talking about an individual. This is talking about us as a Christian, that when we come to faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit comes and resides in us. And now we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And there's a sense in which that's true, but that's not what this passage is saying. And here's why. The yous in Greek here are all plural. So you actually should read it this way. Do y'all not know that y'all are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in y'all? If anyone destroys God's temple, that is the church, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy and y'all are that temple. So the temple of the Holy Spirit is not the individual believer, at least not fundamentally from this passage. It's the called out assembly. It's the covenant community of the local church gathered together that then is this temple of the Holy Spirit. This holy place, this place of worship and reverence and respect, this place where you can meet with God, a temple of the Holy Spirit. And the church is that temple. And there's a warning here that if someone comes in and wants to badmouth the church, wants to divide the church, wants to complain about the local church, God will destroy him because it's his temple. So that means that we all need to be like uber careful in how we talk about our churches. We need to be super careful because we may be by our complaining, by our criticism, we may be defaming God's temple. And if we destroy it, if we bring damage to Christ's bride, his body, his temple, God will destroy him, it says. I don't think it's joking there. You think of the Old Testament when Uzzah touches the Ark of the Covenant, which you're just not to touch. That is the presence of God. That is like a little mini temple where God's presence dwells symbolically. And he casually, well-intentionally puts his hand on the box and dies immediately. I think we need to be careful when it comes to the local church that if we're going to lay hands or lay words on Christ's church, that um, that we're willing to understand what that really means, that that local church is holy to the extent that it is faithful to the gospel, to the extent that the Holy Spirit genuinely dwells there, that they're being faithful to their master. To, the, to that extent, we must be careful in how we speak and treat God's temple, the church. Ephesians 4 says this, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. That's temple language. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. Now he's speaking this to a particular local church. I think he's speaking of local church here. Like, you, when you become members of a church, become glued together with the other members and the wall is being built. This church is beginning to grow. It's a structure. It's a literal, I guess, spiritual, not literal, but spiritual structure. But you can actually see it because you can see these people covenanted together and these bricks, just as you were building a building. If you put bricks together and you put mortar, they're glued together. The bricks can't just come and go. They're glued together. And that's what covenant commitment in the local church is that God is joining them together and it's growing. And the bricks have to stay put, have to stay committed, have to stay connected in order for this building to grow. And that's the church. So the temple of the Holy Spirit is meant to uh, to portray the church 
as the suitable, holy presence of God on earth that should be reverenced and loved and kept pure and clean and right before God as a suitable, holy expression of God's presence on earth, the local church. Fourth metaphor, we've had bride, body, temple, and fourthly, the embassy of the kingdom, an embassy. An embassy is a place where an ambassador does his work. Uh, An ambassador is someone who represents the interests of a different kingdom or country in a foreign country. And so he speaks on behalf of, he doesn't make up policy, but he speaks and advocates for the policies of a different kingdom in a foreign kingdom. And the embassy is the place where you can find him. It's his office. It's his, his place. And what happens is that in an embassy, the U.S. embassy that's in Nigeria or Australia or wherever we have embassies, over that embassy flies one flag. It's not the flag of the country that they're in. It's the flag of the United States. And the moment you walk onto that embassy, you are actually literally on U.S. soil because that's who rules in that embassy. And what you have is you have someone there who represents the United States interest in that place. Second Corinthians five, Ephesians two, Colossians one, Hebrews 13, Philippians three, um, all speak in some ways to this reality that the church is the embassy. It is in a foreign land in this world's kingdom. The kingdom of Christ has outposts, has embassies in the world that the flag of Jesus flies above, not the flag of the United States, not the flag of whatever country we're in, but the local church It's not flying the flag of the U.S. It's flying the flag of the kingdom of God, of Christ. And we're representing his interests in whatever country we may find ourselves in. Whether those policies come in contact um, or or in conflict, I should say, in conflict or are in step with the, the whether or not. That embassy has a good relationship policy-wise with the country that they're located in. They represent the king and his kingdom. The flag of Jesus flies over them. Second Corinthians 5 describes this. He says, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is the ambassador's job. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world, the foreign kingdom, to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, but entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, verse 20, we are ambassadors for Christ. Make God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of God, on behalf of Christ, to be reconciled to God. So the church is an embassy that is filled with ambassadors who are representing King Jesus's plan to reconcile enemies, traitors, terrorists into his kingdom. So we are to go into enemy territory and we are to set up embassies everywhere we can, as many embassies as possible, where the kingdom of heaven is actually ruling and reigning and Jesus's interests are being lived out and people are being offered an opportunity to step out of the world's kingdom outside cross over and enter into the citizenship of King Jesus to come under his rule and reign. That's our job. And so the embassy of the kingdom depicts the already and the not yetness of Christ's perfect rule and reign. He is reigning. The kingdom of God is here and yet it's still to come. And so God is, God has set up embassies, local churches all around the world. And we need a billion more in order to invite people to come in, to, to offer this ministry of reconciliation. Where can you come out of the cold day? dead world's kingdom and find the life-giving, reconciling kingdom of heaven, you step into a local church. That's where the kingdom of heaven is made real.
So those four metaphors of the church, the bride, the body, the temple, the embassy, which tell us a lot about who the church is meant to be, what it's to be about, and how it is to live. So lastly, let's take a look at what Christ says about the church. What does Christ say about the church? Now, the overwhelming uh, term that God uses for his or Christ uses for his people in the Gospels is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom. Only two times in all of the Gospels does Jesus reference the church. And so that should really get our attention that the two times that Jesus is talking about the church should really be key texts for us understanding and defining what we want to be as Redeeming Grace Church. Matthew chapter 16 is one of them. This is the first one. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? The most important question in all the world. Simon Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And look at what Jesus does here. He says, and Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. He affirms him. He affirms his confession as being a called out, called out by God. So remember, we've been talking about the ecclesia as being a called out assembly. He's saying that you made the right confession about me. That is the right posture before the king. And you are blessed because God called you to say that. God gave you those words. You are a called out one. And here's what he says. I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church, ecclesia, called out assembly. Peter, you're a called out one. I give you my endorsement. I affirm your confession. I include you as the first one in the called out assembly. And that profession right there, that right posture before the king is the rock I'm going to build my church on. That's what he's talking about. He's not talking about Peter being the rock. He's talking about what was revealed to Peter by God, his confession, his right posture before God, the calling that Peter just affirmed, just confirmed that that Jesus himself is receiving. That's what I'm going to build my called out assembly on. And here's what that church is going to do. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And look at this. I will give you the keys of the kingdom and of heaven. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. So now he's linked all of this kingdom language that he's been talking about. The keys to that kingdom, they belong to the church. They belong to the, the church. How do you get into the kingdom of the kingdom? You have to have the keys to be able to get into the kingdom. Who holds the keys? The church. The church holds the keys and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. So this is massively significant. First time Jesus ever mentions the church and it is in the context of affirming and including Peter into a right posture of the king. You are part of my called out assembly and now I am going to give you the responsibility, Peter, the church, I'm going to give the church the responsibility to do what I just did, which is affirm and include those who rightly respond to the king. So notice the profession. You are the son. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Notice the affirmation and inclusion. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Flesh and blood is not revealed to you, this to you, but my father who is in heaven. I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Affirmed and included him in the church. That's a right profession made by a right professor. 
That is a right response and a right disposition to the identity of the king. And then notice the commission. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So Jesus spoke for heaven and said, my father revealed this to you. He speaks authoritatively for heaven about the reality that's just happened. Jesus has just exercised the keys of the kingdom. And now he's turning them over to the church saying, you do what I just did. You affirm and include those who rightly respond to the king. That's your job. That I am about to go to heaven. I'm about to ascend into heaven. And uh, I'm going to leave this responsibility with you to hold out the message of the king and those who rightly respond to it. You affirm them and you include them in this kingdom, in this church. So church, your job, the church, here's bottom line, Matthew 16, the church speaks for heaven by affirming and including those who rightly respond to the king. The church doesn't decide who gets into the kingdom. The church just renders the verdict based on what Jesus has said. So let's think of a judge for a second. A judge doesn't make the laws. He's got a case in front of him. He's got to decide guilty or innocent, and he doesn't make the law. He just renders a verdict on does how does the law apply to this situation? Likewise, the church serves in a sense as God's judge in the sense that the church doesn't determine who does and doesn't get into heaven, but the church has the responsibility to make sure that people understand what the right message of the king is and that when they've rightly received it to go, yes, we have heaven's authority to confirm, affirm, include you in this kingdom thing. That's our responsibility to affirm and include those who rightly respond to the king. The church proclaims the kingdom, lives according to the kingdom values, invites others to join, and then affirms and includes the appropriate response on heaven's behalf. That's the positive. Jesus mentions church one other time in Matthew 18, just two chapters later. So let's look at the other side of this. So So again, one, Jesus says that the church speaks for heaven by affirming and including those who rightly respond to the king. Matthew 18, 15 through 20. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose shall be loosed on uh, whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in, in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. So this is the negative side. We, The church has the responsibility to hold out the message of the king and then to affirm and include with joy those who rightly respond to the king. They're brought into the church. They're brought into the kingdom. Matthew 18 tells us that the church also has a responsibility to speak for heaven. You already see the binding and loosing. You see kind of the the connection with the keys in Matthew 16 about you get to have the, you have the authority to affirm and include those who rightly respond. You also have the authority of heaven to speak for heaven by denying and excluding those who wrongly respond to the gospel. So this is the negative side of it. We, we have the, Keys of the kingdom that the church has the authority and responsibility for Jesus to affirm and include, but also to deny and exclude those who wrongly respond to the king. And we have this solemn picture of one who is not living, um, that is living in sin, is living in treason against the king. And it's not just that he's doing that. It's just that it's that 
when he's challenged to bring his life into submission of the king, he defies it. He is unrepentant. He is he is choosing his sin over the king. And there's this repeated warning system that people are going to him until eventually it says, tell it to the church. And then if he still won't listen, if he still will not posture himself rightly before the king, then you can no longer consider him a citizen of the kingdom. You can no longer consider him a member of the church and you put him out. Uh, as an act of discipline to get his attention that if you are not responding to rightly responding to the king, you cannot be considered a kingdom citizen. So the body has an immune system. This is someone who's publicly unrepentantly living inconsistent with his profession of allegiance to the king. He's committing treason. And there's an increasing warning system that appeals to the Holy Spirit in this person to bring his conduct in accord with his profession. And if he persists in this treasonous act against the king, then he must be denied and excluded from the kingdom so that the world will know what the kingdom is really like. The ambassadors can be fired. <laughs> the, the, the members can be excommunicated. The body has an immune system, has the ability to correct, has the ability to discipline. And so the church has the solemn and sometimes hard responsibility to deny and exclude those who wrongly respond to the king. Those who get the king's person, his identity, his message wrong. Those who want to tweak and change Jesus, the king, into something else. Those who want to live defiantly as if he's not the king must be lovingly excluded so that they will get um, so it will get their attention and they'll be brought in. And in this last verse, verse 20, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. You've probably heard that verse in the context of like, whenever you have a Bible study, it's like a little mini church. That's not what it's saying. It's in the context of doing the deep, heartbreaking work of putting someone out of the church because they just simply will not live submitted to the king. And Jesus is just giving a kind word here that whenever you have to do the hard work of excluding and denying someone who is in uh, is committing treason against the king, just know that I'm with you in that. So the, the spirit of where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them, is when you have the sad reality of having to exercise the keys in a disciplinary matter on someone who just refuses to bow the knee to the king, even though they claim to be a follower of the king. And the, the point here, the point here, is that it will get someone's attention and they will become rightly related to the king. The king is so wonderful and so glorious that to have a right posture before him is the best thing in the world. And the most dangerous thing in the world is to not have a right posture before the king. Here's what this means. It is, well, here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that if you sin and get it wrong, that you're immediately denied and excluded from the church. There's a warning system here. There's a way to repent. There's a way to turn around. And the kingdom citizens, church members, Christians are not those who always get it right, but it's those that when they're confronted with the king, they repent, they change, they submit themselves anew to him. So the Christian is one who just continually is repenting for all the ways they get it wrong. It's not that Christians are perfect. It's not that we're even trying to be perfect. It's that we're trying to stay submitted to the king. And when we get it right, we go to him and we make it right. And he always forgives. He always receives. But if we refuse to go to the king, forget to admit, uh, uh, fail to admit, choose ourselves and our own way over the way of the king, then we will be removed. We will be put out. We will be warned as an act of love, because just as being rightly related to the king is the most wonderful thing in all the world, to be defiant of the king is the most dangerous thing in the world. 
It's awful. This king is so powerful and so wonderful that to be on his side is to have everything and to be resolute in your denial, in your treason, in your resistance of him is to put yourself on the opposite side of the most powerful being in all of the universe. It's to cut yourself off from all that is good. And the church has the solemn responsibility to help people feel that here on the earth, not in a vindictive way, not in a judgmental way, but in a way that goes, we do not want you to get to the end of your life and stand before King Jesus and be denied and excluded by him. To have this false sense of assurance because the church was not willing to tell you the truth, was not willing to challenge you, to not care about you enough for you to to be surprised by that on judgment day would be unloving for sure. So if we love people, if we love our fellow citizens, if we love the king and his kingdom, then we need to find a loving and gracious way to be able to point out and help one another turn away from those ways that we are being treasonous to the king. And if we're truly citizens of the king, when we're confronted by that, it might take a time or two, but the true kingdom citizens want the king more than anything else. And they will give up whatever sin. They will turn from whatever they need to turn away from. They will do, they will commit to whatever they need to commit to because they love the king more than anything else. And if they choose their own sin, they choose a different posture before the king, then the church has a responsibility to just make it clear that this is not a kingdom citizen. And that's a solemn responsibility. So according to Jesus, on the positive side, the church speaks for heaven by affirming and including those who rightly respond to the king. And according to Matthew 18, the church speaks for heaven by denying and excluding those who wrongly respond to the king. It's our responsibility to make sure that that's clear to the world, clear to us as individuals, that the king kingdom does have an inside and an outside. And it's the church's job to make that as clear as we possibly can. We're not always going to get it right to make it as clear as possible as we possibly can in this world, uh, a representation of the kingdom. Bottom line. At Redeeming Grace Church, the commands of Jesus will always define our mission and purpose and priorities. He's the king. He gets to decide what the church is, what the church does, why the church does it, how the church does it. We do not get to decide what the, what the church will be. King Jesus does. And he's already laid out our marching orders and our priorities and our purpose. We will look to the scriptures for our marching orders for the church. We will not look to the political parties. Even the documents of the United States, as wonderful as they are, the Bill of Rights, the Constitution, those are not our marching orders. The words of Jesus are our marching orders. We will not look to the culture or even to your expectations and preferences, but with what Jesus wants his church to be. Jesus is king. He has no advisors. He has no consultants. He has no lawyers. He only has citizens. He only has a called out assembly. A body a temple, an embassy, a bride. And we are that bride. He doesn't need our advice. He doesn't need our consultation. He doesn't need us to defend him. To stick up for him in that sense. We're not, the church is not a law firm. It's a bride. It's a body. It's a temple. It's an embassy. He doesn't need our help or ideas, our strategies or arguments. He doesn't need our help. He needs our submission. He needs our right posture before him. He demands our unconditional allegiance to whatever he says. Also, at Redeeming Grace Church, we will take seriously our commission to speak for heaven concerning right and wrong responses to King Jesus. We will proclaim the gospel of the kingdom above all. 
We will genuinely enjoy God in a way that is salt and light in the world. We will take seriously the eternal destination of every soul. We will be tremendously careful with who we give our endorsement as a believer as through baptism. We're going to be careful who we baptize. That's the God-ordained means, the Christ-ordained means for affirming and including those who rightly respond to the king. He gave us one. He gave us one way to affirm and include people in the church, and that's baptism. We will be tremendously careful with the Lord's Supper, the ongoing affirmation and inclusion of the people of God, the Lord's Supper. And we will warn and correct, encourage and help concerning a right disposition before the king. We will do this. We will take this seriously, our commission to speak for heaven concerning right and wrong responses to King Jesus. And I'm just going to tell you that maybe you're sitting there and you're listening to this, or maybe you're whatever you're doing, however you're listening to this podcast, you might be sitting there and you're thinking, I don't know if I have a right disposition before the king. Let me help you with that. Jesus is the king of everything. He's the maker of all things. And he came to earth to save sinners like you and me, people who didn't get it right, people who have betrayed him, denied him, resisted him. He came on the earth and he lived a perfect life satisfying the perfect righteousness of God. And on the cross, he died for sin. He took the penalty that you and I rightly deserved. And on the third day, he rose again from the dead, proving that he can defeat death and sin and that he has done it. And now he holds out an opportunity to you to bow the knee to him, to receive his grace and forgiveness, to be made a kingdom citizen, to be called out from the world, to be called out from your sin, to be called out from hell, from separation from him, and be brought into an assembly, an eternal assembly of people gathered around his throne, to be part of the global church, and as part of that call, to join in with a local church, to be affirmed and included through baptism, to have that affirmation and inclusion reaffirmed regularly through the taking of the Lord's Supper, and to exercise the keys of the kingdom along with your covenant brothers and sisters in the local church, to extend that affirmation and inclusion, that denying and excluding work that we must do together to participate in that, to the glory of Christ and for the representation of his kingdom on the earth. That's our aim. That's our goal. We'll unpack that more next week. Let's pray. God, thank you that your word is so clear. And thank you for this cosmic plan before the world and before um, before heaven and hell that you have chosen to use the church to be the display of your glory. And we thank you that Redeeming Grace Church is a part of that, that to step into Redeeming Grace Church is to step into the kingdom. It is to come in contact with ambassadors. It is to behold the beautiful bride. It is to witness the body. It is to be in the presence of the temple of the Holy Spirit. And God, I pray that we would take that so seriously, as seriously as your word takes it, the church that you died to create. Lord, I pray that we would not treat it with any less reverence, that if it's worth you giving your life, and rising again for and interceding for, then certainly it is worth our allegiance. It is certainly worth our um, our participation, our membership in it. God, thank you for that. Thank you for that good gift. And may we be a good representation of the kingdom of God in the world. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. 
For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.